0: So hello, everyone, and thank you for for joining our photo book book group. Um, I'm Jayce Smith, and I am really honored to have Lauren Walsh with us. And when we spoke, which was really the first time we met last week, it was on the day that Lauren, you were going to be the keynote speaker at the Gathering of the World Press Photo. Um, That is not lost on me as I have been following World Press Photo for so long. And we in the United States have much less viewing of what World Press Photo has to offer. And I'm just so pleased to make connection with you who have such a, a wide matrix that you tackled in your book, Conversations on Conflict Photography. You are an NYU professor. Um, I don't go into a long introduction in that people often know who you are or can look that up. But but what I want to to focus on is that you tackle this complex matrix and you provided a platform for those of us on this call and those of us consuming, uh, frankly, the news and visual culture, um, you've brought us behind the lens. You wanted to give us a place so that we could hear from who's making conflict photographs, what are they thinking, who are the gatekeepers that actually uh, allow us to see some of the imagery that we do see, and what are the purposes behind the images that we see of human struggle, uh, those of conflict, but all of the myriad issues that are part and parcel of conflict, like famine. Um, I think it's interesting that your book began with well, I'm sure a whole host of things, but one image in particular. And that as a professor, one of your students had this dispassionate, I'll call it, response to this iconic image that James Knockway took in the Sudan in 1993. And your student basically expressed that um, he didn't have a reason to look or, or engage. Um, I also find it really interesting but appropriate that you did not decide to include this image in your book because frankly it isn't about a particular image. It's about this matrix, our our news cycle, the creation of imagery, the distribution of imagery. It's about the practice and the product of conflict photography. Um, We have so much to unpack (laughs) It was uh, unlike any other book that I have uh, done a photo book book group about Um, yours was uh, With the most academic focus with the um, majority being given to the written word not the image Um, But what I'd like to do today is we're gonna have an unscripted conversation Um, We would like to hear how you developed this idea Uh, We want to go into some of your decision-making processes, kind of the evolution um, of the idea into a book. And there are so many layers. I I, I wrote seven pages of notes as I read. And I don't script what I'm going to say to you either, but it felt like a cacophony of images that we could go into. Um, So... I guess I want to begin with what brought you to tackle this very complicated terrain. And thank you for letting me. Have a long introduction.
1: <laughs> uh, no, that introduction was was fantastic. I should have you introduce me all the time. Um, I'm just going to make one. I, I am a professor, as Sybilla said, at NYU um, and also at the New School, and I just want to mention that specifically because I saw at least two of my wonderful New School students in our audience. Um, yeah, so my field of expertise um, for a while has been conflict photography. Um, And I have been working on this from the perspective of a professor uh, as a cultural critic, um, as a photo editor who works a lot with the war photographers, um, and as a writer. So these are issues I've been thinking about for a long time, but the catalyst for the book itself was actually that episode in one of my NYU classes. Um, It was... I mean, it, d- Sybilla, do you want me to just like tell the story of yeah, what yeah, that actually yeah. happened? Yes. Um, sure. So it's, it, I, I guess for some people, like there is a definitive moment that starts a book and, and that for me was the definitive moment that started the book. So it was a course on, um, I teach a lot of classes on photography and ethics, um, and this was a course that focused heavily on, well, conflict photography and ethics so it's you know questions like what does it mean to take pictures of someone else's suffering and what does it mean to look at pictures of someone else's suffering um and just as Sibylla said uh partway through the semester we were studying the coverage of a famine in Sudan in the early 1990s um and the way that I teach my classes is often very interdisciplinary so the students were assigned um reading about this famine but they had to read about the history They had to read about the political forces that were shaping the famine. They were looking at the photojournalistic and documentary coverage of it, and they were reading critiques of the coverage as well. So it was a pretty kind of rounded package of what was going on at that moment in history. And they, so we got, came into class um, and the classes are seminar style. They're very discussion based. So I usually start off with a lecture and then we as a class kind of grapple through the issues. And because I work with photography, I always bring images into the classroom. So I projected the first image and it's that photograph that Sybilla referenced um, by James Noctway. It's a picture just to give you the verbal description. It's a picture, it's a black and white photo. It's a picture of a man at a feeding center in Sudan. Um, he is severely, severely emaciated. I mean, he is skeletal. Um, and as if that weren't tough enough, um, you, uh, you understand how weak he is because he's not even standing, he's crawling on the ground. Um, so it's one, of those, it's one of those tough photos that confronts you with you know, how dire human suffering can be. And so I put the picture up and I was about to start the class discussion and a student raised his hand and said, Professor, I totally understand why you're putting that picture up, but it's such a downer and I have plans tonight and I don't see why I should have to look at that picture and be made to feel bad. I have nothing to do with that man suffering, so why should I care? I'm seeing a few faces that are like, Ugh, and that was my reaction, except that I couldn't be quite so blatantly visible with my reaction as the professor in the classroom. <laughs> Um, But I was like a deer in headlights for a minute. And I think it's important to understand that it's not required. So it's not a body of learning that is forced onto the students. It's an elective. They all know that it's going to be, you know, it's a tough class. It's a tough class on ethics and issues and conflict. Um, And so I was kind of stunned. I'd never heard a student say anything like that before. Like my ears essentially heard such an apathetic response. And I, I pretty much heard him saying, why should I care about someone else's suffering, especially because I have plans tonight? Um, so we, you know, we made our way through the end of that class session and we actually had a pretty productive class discussion that day, largely just about like what does his response mean um, and what, you know, what do we do with it? Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't let it go and kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And by coincidence on the way home from work that day, I bumped into a friend of mine who is a photographer who covers conflicts around the world. And I told him this anecdote from my classroom and I completely expected him to say something to me like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Or wow, that's so offensive. Um, But instead what he said was, I don't actually see why you're surprised. There's nothing provocative about that kind of response anymore. Do you have any idea how often I hear that? And that's actually when the light bulb went on. And I I realized you know, if, if that's a pretty common response, then actually what's the point? What's the point of making these pictures? What's the point of distributing these pictures? So that was when I set out to do a book that would answer that question of what's the point. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, it it folded in all these other topics of what is contemporary photojournalism? What does the industry look like? What are the physical risks of covering conflict? What are the emotional tolls? What forces act as sensors? What's the value of a single image in the age of image saturation? Um, And a whole bunch of stuff uh, that kind of wound up connecting to this initial question of what's the point. And then the book, um, I mean, I don't know if you want me to talk about the structure of the book. I was very purposeful with the structure, um, but I, I'm not sure if you have, if you want me to just yeah. keep expounding.
2: Well,
0: thank you for that, that because I think, um, I think that's really important to hear how uh, the idea grew, because you had your own reaction. And then when it was reflected by another colleague to say, like, almost similar to the student, like, yeah, well, was really what got you. It was such a double whammy, you had to unpack it. So thank you for bringing that up. And um, I do think it's helpful to see the structure of the book. Um, I think um, the idea that you went specifically to photographers, that you went to the news, quote unquote, gatekeepers, and that you went to some of the um, humanitarian groups that actually utilize photography to complete their mission, as well as to fundraise for their mission. Um, You really pulled apart this matrix and that's what I am so impressed with because um, we are often given all these sound bites and we are not given the thread or connection and so really to be informed is so important. So you went to several viewpoints. And so, yes, I would like you to speak to um, how you chose the particular people you did or or even um, your decision in making it those three sections, like the matrix is layered and complex. So you were really able to provide a framework. So how you devise that framework, I'd be interested in hearing.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, so it's, it's structured as a series of interviews, just as you said, broken across three categories. Um, so it's interviews with photographers who cover conflict around the world. And the way I define conflict in the book is, um, certainly it's, it's war zones, but I'm interested in a much broader definition. So it's also natural disasters and humanitarian crises and pulling back from the front lines and looking at civilian tolls. Um, so I even explore gender and economic and political conflicts because mm-hmm. these photographers are covering all of it. Um, and so it's, it's through the lens of the photographers, there's interviews, and then photo editors um, and kind of directors of photo agencies to hear how they're thinking about images. And then, as you said, the humanitarian and human rights organizations. um, That that category was, you know, the photographers are making the images. The photo editors are deciding, you know, which assignments they're going to give to photographers or which images they'll distribute and which they'll hold back. And the NGOs, um, as journalism budgets have crumbled uh, and foreign journalism, foreign news desks have been hit pretty hard. Ngo's um, certain NGOs have stepped in to fill that vacuum and they are hiring journalists to produce visual content for the NGOs. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So on the one hand, they play a financial role in this, um, you know, in this matrix to use your word, but I was also very interested because an NGO. It's not, it's not a journalistic entity. It has an agenda right if you are doctors without borders, you have an agenda that is medical related. And if you're a UNICEF, you have an agenda that is children and women focused. So it's it's not the same as that, you know, quote unquote, historical neutral journalism. And I, I found that a kind of fascinating layer to all this. In terms of the interviews, um, you know, at the outset, you described the book as more academic, um, and it is, it's, it's got more words than pictures. But what I really wanted to do also was to produce a book that, was very accessible Um, and so I didn't want it to be, you know, 200 pages of my voice as the academic using jargon telling you what you should be thinking. Um, I really wanted to give voice to the people who are making the images and distributing the images so that we can, you know, learn from their experiences and insights and challenges and obstacles and what they're going through. I mean, it is a you know, journalists have told me they're very, very interested in the book, but it it's also really a book for a much broader audience of just news consumers. Cause I, I definitely feel like the better you can understand the operations of journalism, the savvier you're gonna be as a news consumer. Um, and the more the more you'll demand I, I want best practices in my news, I want ethical news reporting, I want news that I can trust. Um and so it's, it's both a book for journalism and a book well beyond the industry of journalism.
0: I would agree. Not only, um, w- well, for my own personal reading of it, I, I learned a great deal. And I have been thinking about these issues and working with uh, one of my first shows 2011 was with the photo agency seven. So I've been working with photographers um, who do cover conflict and I'm obviously involved in um, photo editing and publishing in a way that this is, these are issues that I'm thinking about. Um, It was a very accessible book and being able to learn how photographers were thinking, was fascinating and what I really commend you on um, is how uh, um, different the views were and that you just let those, um, I wouldn't say they're contradictions but they're just varying perspectives to be there. And I do think the overriding reach is to become a educated consumer um, and to think about where your news comes from. I mean, I, I know in our household, A, we get paper newspapers and we look who's photographing. Um, and certainly you need to look at bylines and um, that idea of becoming a, um, an analytical news consumer. And we're in this time when we can get so um, labeled and then fed what we want to hear that that's also really important and just to let you know i i am not looking at who's on the call but i know one person who responded is a high school teacher and her comment was two pages of this book is good for an entire class and i would agree and that's high schoolers that need to be you know our next critical thinkers and and obviously we are because you are stopping and asking us to look at this matrix what we're left with right now, and we'll break apart some of that, is that we have to have new models. Um, And how do we we speed up our models for creating and disseminating news? And how do we increase media literacy? We're becoming more sophisticated visually because we see so many more images, but we're not our media literacy lags behind that. And that's one of the points that comes out in the book. so I'm just going through a couple of the um, parts, uh, the people that you let speak. And I think if you could tell us about that first section and what did you learn from interviewing these people? Like, I don't know whether you had um, a wider range. I'm curious about who you selected and then how you elicited different aspects of how they're thinking from different people.
1: Um, yeah, I, so one of the things this is a perfect setup for me to explain, one of the things that I was thinking about with the structures, um, for those who aren't aware or haven't thought about it, the the history of the industry of photojournalism, um, has always been more male than not and more Western than not. Those are kind of the dominant figures, um, certainly not the only figures, um, but there has been an imbalance, and so I was I, I was very certain that I wanted to have a diversity in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so male and female, Western, non-Western, I, even in terms of there's photographers who've been working for four decades in the book, and then there's a rising generation that gets represented and freelance and staff. Um, specific to how I I picked or worked with each photographer who appeared in the book. Um, yeah, I, I reached out to people every, I I have to say or commend every single photographer that I reached out to um, entirely supported the effort of the book uh, and worked with me, giving me their time. I mean, there was, you know, there's a photographer from Bangladesh um, and we've since met many times uh, and become friends, but at the time I was just kind of sending him a cold email and He's whatever we are, 11 hours off. So he, we worked out a Skype time. So he stayed up late and I got up early. Everyone worked with me. Um, and what I would do for each photographer was kind of study their history and their, every single body of work I could find. So I read everyone's books. I looked at all every published article. I mean, that's when I moved into like academic mode. Um, and so it would be an enormous amount of research went into every, every interview before even the interview would occur. Um, and I have like folders of notes that I would take and images that I would print, articles I would read. And then I would call it down to um, a set of, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 questions that I wanted to ask and images I wanted to discuss. But I also asked of each photographer, if if there's images you wanna to bring to the table, please like when we have our interview, bring them and we'll discuss them. And then I did a little bit similar to what you just said. We kind of, we did my set questions, but I I tend to interview it in a style where I let it go organically and it just kind of grows from there. And I feel like sometimes you get the, the best stuff when you haven't always planned for it.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so all the interviews were recorded and then they were edited down and edited for clarity later on. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, you you said I hesitate to use the word contradictions, but I think actually there are some contradictions across the interviews, and I find that fascinating too. That not everyone's calling themselves a journalist, but they're not necessarily all um, looking at photojournalism the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And so, he, and this is by the photographer from Bangladesh, Shahidul Alam. Um, yeah, so it was it was a wonderful privilege to work with people um, that I already knew from New York, uh, and then work with people from Egypt and Iran and Bangladesh and um, a photographer who he's now based in Madagascar, but he's from Zimbabwe. Uh, So it's, it's quite a breadth of voices in there.
0: Mm, It is. And what's interesting is that I felt like each of them, um, uh, brought something, uh, it was like looking at something refracted and taking this beam and looking at it come out in so many different ways. And they each really um, gave a um, unique perspective. And in terms of the contradiction is I guess uh, one issue of the many is, can you have fair representation? Is there such a thing um, as taking a quote unquote neutral, photograph so you have some of your um, interviewees discussing um yes i'm in the photograph or i'm deciding what this frame is and and people driven by a journalistic um history and then you're having people say um i'm just documenting history it is I I I I am an I, as if it's a it it uh the subjectiveness is not there. So maybe if you could talk about that, because I think that is a real key issue that 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 does come back and forth, and there isn't a real simple answer for that.
1: Yeah, um, it's a it's it's one of those kind of key questions with photography, um, and the history of the medium lends itself toward looking like objective reality, right? It's taken by a, a machine. So how could it not be um, completely objective? And over the, the history of the medium, um, we've kind of gotten a little more nuanced in the thinking. And the the logic is much more, well, it may be a machine, but there's a the person behind that machine, right? Who's making subjective decisions in terms of what where am I pointing the lens? What kind of film am I using? If this was, you know, a few decades ago, how am I processing my pictures today? Um, who do I work for? Where is it being seen? All kinds of subjective questions. Um, and so what I found uh, interesting in the book is like, like, there's at least one photographer, Nusha Tavakolian, who she calls herself a documentary photographer and and an artist. Um, and she says, I. I absolutely, this is a creation and I want to teach people and I want it to be visually aesthetic. I want it to have an artes- artistic aesthetic. This photographer right here, Ron you, um, he very much um, says, photographs, of course, they always carry subjectivities with them. Uh, of course, you're dependent on my eyes, but I am nevertheless bearing witness for you and I aim to do it accurately. That's the word he uses is accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, you know, I'm not, I'm gonna to try to give you the most representative picture of what I'm experiencing on the ground.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, can I uh, interrupt for one sec? Cause we're having a, a, a techno issue. Okay, got it. Are you seeing my chat or not? Ron no, I'm... you're just seeing Ron Haviv?
1: I'm seeing Ron Haviv. Okay. okay. Actually, I'm seeing a little boy from Croatia, but. <laughs>
0: And actually, I remember from this, this, uh, this leads to one other interesting topic of, of um, can one image make a difference? And this happens to be an image where Ron was able to go back and re-meet this young boy, like, what, 15 years later, um, and that there was a response to this image.
1: Yeah, so the story, I, I forget actually what the question was that I asked him in the interview, but it was possibly something along the lines of exactly what you're saying, like how much success can a single image have or how mm-hmm. much of a difference can a single image have? Um, and I, I, the way he talks it through is um, images can have impact and sometimes it's, it's slow. Like you as the photographer, you always want or hope for the impact to be immediate. Um, and more often than not, if there is an impact, it'll, it'll happen over time. And so this particular photo, um, this is from the War of Independence in Croatia. This is Vukovar, a major city that was, took a huge hit during that war. Uh, and the little boy is, who's in a you know, kind of, your eye is drawn to him. Mm-hmm. His father is killed and this is at his father's funeral. And so Ron covers this um, and takes the picture and it gets published. And that was all he knew of the picture at the time. Um, And then at some point later, he went back to Vukovar, I believe, or at least to Croatia. um, And he wound up, Ron that is, meeting that former little boy who had grown up. And the boy said, after the picture was taken, a number of people donated money to my family. It was able to help my family get through. I was able to finish school. Um, and thank you, essentially. I mean, it was one of these, like, you don't, as a photojournalist, you don't expect, or you never know what kind of life cycle or trajectory your photo might have. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those, you know, it starts at a, such a sad moment, but it leads towards a happier trajectory. And apparently the boy's father was a policeman, I believe. And the boy um, grew up to fall in his father's footsteps and also became a policeman.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do remember that. Um, I'm going to go through a few more images because you interviewed in total 13 photographers? I think 12. Oh, 12. Okay. And then um, you had mentioned that you let them bring the imagery. So in the final selection, was it the photographer that decided what images would be used in their interview? Or did you have some
1: No, in the interviews, I came with 10 or 15 images, and um, often they would send me another five or 10 images. And then for the book itself, I did the final edit, um, largely based on what got highlighted in the words, because I really wanted a relationship between the words and the image, right? I wanted it to be an experience of you look at a photo and all the layers behind it get kind of peeled back for you so you can understand, like this picture we're looking at which was taken in Gaza a year and a half, coming up on two years ago, um, I, I wanted the reader to understand not just we're looking at the body of a teenager who was shot and killed, but what, like everything that was happening. And the photographer Spencer Platt um, describes, I mean, he describes the smells, the sounds, the experience. He's in a, he's, it's a very narrow alleyway right mm-hmm. here, and he said the only way to get through and take this picture he's not actually looking through the viewfinder and framing anything, the camera is held like this because he's being jostled by so many people and he's trying to keep his balance with one hand and he's photographing with the other. Um, and so he talks through, you know, the experience of taking this picture and how at funeral processions in the Middle East, it's common to um, have gunfire shot into the air. And he mm-hmm. talks about how, although I've, I've been through those experiences so many times, I never get over how jittery it makes me to hear the gunshots. Um, And then he also talked through the process of, you know, why he, why this image? Um, So he takes hundreds of pictures uh, at a go, and then he has to sit down every night and go through all of his images. And Getty Images is a wire service, so he has to, on a daily basis, um, submit images to his editors. He has to go very, he's on a very fast pace. Um, And he talked about how, when he saw this one, he said, you know, you've got, what What drew him to it was the mixture of life and death. He's like, "It's in the foreground, it's death, and that's painful. But you also see a coming together of people, a unity. He liked that there was Arabic writing in the background, so you had a sense of place, if not the exact location. And so he it was, you know i'm as an academic, I'm often used to reading other academic texts that are, Um, critical almost hostile to Mm -hmm. to conflict photography Um, you know the kind of how could you be such a vulture and take this picture and it was nice to hear the perspectives of the photographers and to hear um, just how thoughtful they were about their images Um, you know and there were times of course when I disagreed with some of their decisions but uh, they're not unthinking Right, they're they're quite studied in the debates. Um, They know the history of photography much better than the average person might think. Um, And even just hearing Spencer talk through this image was,
0: it it becomes so much more
1: layered to hear all of that. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And um, there's an interesting other point that you were, I want to go in two different directions, so I'm just going to take a note um, on this particular image. As challenging as the subject matter obviously is, um, it is a beautiful image, and there is an aesthetic draw in the sense uh, there is painterly light on the person's Face that is being carried through the street, the drape of the fabric and the bright red, um, it it is layered aesthetically in a way that I think, um, and maybe we can circle back to this, but that in our visual sophistication, um, a tool that is happening now is bringing people in on some level aesthetically to then engage with what they're actually seeing. Um, so one, one thing I want to just like pull out is this, this, uh, the aesthetics of an image. Um, the other is that that speaks to the difference between our gazing, glancing, scrolling through imagery versus reading an image, um, which is another big point. But where I was going next, because of what you had just said, is that, um, we're in this trifecta in terms of the, the history of um, photojournalism, documentary photography. So many things happened at the same time and we, 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 don't have, we don't have our land legs yet, so to speak. So if you think about how warfare changed, warfare literally became more urban. Uh, we started to, um, so the three things that I see happening at the same time is how warfare changed. Then the introduction of digital capture and the difference between when people had to actually do film and process it in the bathroom and have it go over a wire service and how much time that took. Um, And then we have these dissemination Uh, platforms that are lightning speed that are kind of like uh, uncharted territory Um, and there is so much that can be uh, seen because of our ability to have web-based platforms. So you have um, the changed warfare started to embed photographers with um, military and so that changed a lot, the relationship with the um, the photographer's access is completely different in that, and that has you know different implications. Um, the digital capture has opened up everything, including citizen journalism. Um, and then, of course, the web-based platforms and how they can be used and misused. Um, so if we want to take a couple of minutes to look at that, that's quite the powerful, uh, I almost think of it as like earthquakes and aftershocks. <laughs> they just, you know, all happened very, very quickly in the last 30 years.
1: Yeah, <laughs> these are a whole bunch of big topics. Um, <laughs> right. Which is, is there exactly, one? Yeah, sorry. Particular is exactly, one you want me to
0: start on or? Well, just the, this idea of like um, how all of these things had so, it's almost like the ripple effect. Um, I guess it's again, why I am so impressed with your ability to kind of break into this and harness this very dynamic matrix because it's constantly changing and and how do we change along with it, and how do we catch up um, with our our media literacy?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you're right um, you know so there's always been evolutions in warfare and you know evolutions with the camera, but over the past twenty to thirty years things sped up very very enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has meant, I mean, for me, you, just to kind of restate a couple of your points, um, warfare is often now, um, as you said, it's, it's conducted in urban spaces. Um, you know, the, the idea of the front line where soldiers go to battle is, I mean, they still have front lines, but now the, it'll be in the middle of Damascus or the, in the middle of Aleppo. Um, mm-hmm. And it'll be just past the block of buildings that were blown up yesterday. So it's it's a totally different experience of war uh, that often puts civilians right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that journalists are now documenting digitally um, means, I mean, the the induction of the digital. So two thousand one is the year that um, digital camera sales outpaced uh, analog camera sales, and from then on, it's ever been, you know, it's been ever a, a kind of much more digital world. Mm-hmm. And i for me, it means a few things um and if I just stick with the example, let's say of Syria, you do of course have much more citizen journalism, as you were saying um not even of course because everyone's carrying you know their professional digital cameras, but because everyone's carrying camera camera equipped phones um and the the cameras on phones are are really quite good so there's the introduction of citizen journalism, which is uh, in some regards it's Phenomenal, right? Because you can have the you can have eyewitnesses and the documentation of, of breaking news or violations that occur away from professional journalistic eyes, and that's mm-hmm. very, very important. Um, and then at the same time, you know, the average citizen is not trained in journalistic standards and ethics, so we have to also be very tentative with that kind of imagery. Um, Has it been vetted? Was it manipulated? If it's captioned, is it captioned properly? Was the photographer influenced? Is this agenda-based? All the sorts of things that are already built into the logic of photography that we see in like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, Mm -hmm. Another like aspect to think about with the rise of the digital, it's much, much more dangerous now for photojournalists. You know, I was talking about that photographer who had to take hundreds of pictures and then submit his images that same night. You know, the pace is really fast. It's a 24-7 news cycle. But that means you are also, um, the news is almost published in real time. So forces who don't like you, whether they're combatants or governments, um, they know where you are because you're publishing in nearly real time right and this is not I, I mean journalists all now should be trained in you know how to be smart with their digital devices and how to block their gps so that they can't be tracked by terrorists but even beyond that like if your images are being published in a cer- of a certain location um this this can be very dangerous and even the one of the photographers in my book Shahidul Alam um He gave, I think it was like a Facebook Live or Skype interview. Um, I was still working on the book at the time, but I had already done my interview with him. And he criticized the Bangladesh government in his interview. And lo and behold, in the middle of the night, that very night, police show up, I mean, uh, innumerable numbers of police show up at his door, banging at the door, and they dragged him out and he was carted off to jail where he was tortured. Um, He was held for months. Um, And what he said, Afterwards, and I, it was so powerful to me, I quoted it um, in the book. He said, the only crime I can be accused of having committed is the crime of journalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the the real timeness of our digital world is, you know, it's important we get information faster, we learn about events as they're happening, and it's also even more dangerous for the journalists who are on these quote unquote front lines, right? Because the, the front line, it can be political, it doesn't have to be a war zone. Um, and i think then just the the third component of what you had raised was the dissemination platforms um and that yeah i mean the fact now that we can get our news from any number of 500 you know 1000 different sources some of them remain of course vetted right the new york times online is the digital version of the New York Times in the newspaper, right? They might have some more content online, but it's bringing with it the same journalistic vetting and standards that we would expect. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can publish lots of things anywhere, uh, you know, and it can look like news, or you can even take an image from the New York Times. And this to me is one of the kind of double-edged swords of digital photography. It's so easy to just do a screen grab of you know, the front page photo from the New York Times, and I share it with a different caption under it. And all of a sudden, I've created a piece of propaganda. And if I have a big enough following, what does it matter if my followers are listening to me and believing me? Um, So I think the dissemination of false information, just as you said, it can happen much more easily, and it can happen like wildfire now. Um, And there's, there's plenty of examples of this of this happening, um, where something gets tweeted, and then gets picked up and retweeted and retweeted and retweeted. And you can put out the correction, but by that time, you've, you've lost the propaganda battle. So it's, mm-hmm. it is scary. And that is one of the, I mean, it's exactly as you were saying, That is one of the reasons why I feel like media literacy is so utterly, utterly important. Um, and for the, for the high school teacher, I, I firmly believe it should be happening in middle school and high school.
0: Yeah, this idea of um, critical thinking, critical eye. Um, I was reminded, and you and I discussed it, that um, in reference to the image that was manipulated and put in a news source, uh, which was the response to the Charlie Hebdo uh, terrorist attack in France, and we had political leaders in a a demonstration of unity and a um, news source, I believe it was in Israel, um, took out the women that were in that photograph and put the photograph in their newspaper as if that was the reality, which it obviously isn't. Um, So that part is amazing. And interestingly, I stopped on Nina's image here because um, in terms of um, that, that was, uh, that kind of manipulation was done because of social, political, religious practices of a particular group. And that leads me to the gender component here. Um, we're seeing women, um, as as I noted when I wrote uh, Through a Woman's Lens, women have always been taking the photographs, we just haven't always seen them. And now that, um, there are two points. One is that you, you particularly wanted to focus your book towards how a Western audience sees. Um, so I think that's an important point. And then the idea that um, our history of uh, photojournalism, as you mentioned, comes from a white male, quote, colonial gaze. Um, We tend to reinforce stereotypes um, as a result. And um, this idea of um, women photojournalists documenting, and um, I I have a few quotes from some people that you interviewed, but Nina, uh, in in terms of this particular image, um, was really approaching, and you can speak to this more informed than I, but the idea that um, she was trying to show the complexities, and that this person that is holding up her degree um, was someone who um, was no longer able to work or or have a, a profession, um, and when she wanted to show that when Nina wanted to show that discrepancy she had no idea that when this woman showed her her degree it would have a photograph so we have a photograph of her within a photograph and um, I just think this is an extremely powerful photograph again this speaks to the aesthetics of an image Um, and uh, maybe if you could open up that idea of the, um, the gender issue
1: yeah, so this is um this is by Nina Berman um and it was work I believe it was taken in the late 1990s maybe 1998 she she went to Afghanistan um she was I think working for Newsweek and assigned with a reporter named Carla Powers and they were looking at um women under Taliban rule um so you know I, I believe Taliban came into power maybe 96 um And all the women who had prior to Taliban rule been working as, uh, so this woman, what she's holding there is her business degree, Um, but, you know, women had been lawyers and doctors and that ended um, due to Taliban restrictions and women also had to cover, right? You can see this woman's face is covered. And so Nina um, went to do this story um, and initially, you know, she was like, how do you, you can't really walk around with cameras, you can't take pictures of women, like how am I gonna do this? And she had to figure out ways to negotiate this pretty restrictive space. And she does talk about how she met this woman um, and the woman said, I did. I completed a small business degree, I can't use my degree anymore. Um, and so Nina said, you know, well, can you show me your degree? Like I'll, I'll be able to show your past through the object of your diploma. So they went to the woman's home. She describes how this is a portrait. Um, She did think through the color. Uh, So it's different from a typical journalistic image where you are not allowed to influence anything in the image. In a portrait, you can set it up. You're essentially the director. Um, And so she liked the light on the wall. She liked the colors. And she said, as the woman picked up her small business degree and held it in front of her, she realized there was a photograph on it. And again, just to the point that I, many of these photographers, to me at least, they're so, Thought, they're so thinking. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she has this line in the interview where she says the, the faceless woman really has a face, right? She really has an identity and here we see it in her diploma and we see who she was but also who she is and what's being kind of taken from her in this moment.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember a quote from Nina in the book that um, I was trying to keep track as I read the interviews if the photographer told us why they do what they do, um, like why are you why are you doing this? Um, and what she had mentioned was um, subverting the restrictions on neutrality. And I thought that was such a powerful, powerful piece. Um, I also thought this was an amazing uh, example of the power of the photograph and the audience because this is. Uh, identifying I believe displaced people so they can have the experience of seeing themselves like if you think about that when people have migrated under all these conditions they leave with very very little and uh, here they are being seen and And this, I think, is an interesting place to look at the power of the photograph outside of the news, uh, and as well as looking at the power of the photograph on who is getting to see it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is an incredible story. It's um, the Zaatari camp. It's a refugee camp um, in Jordan. I I think it's the second largest camp in the world of, of of displaced persons. And yeah, so these images are not journalism in the traditional sense. She Mm -hmm. says there were plenty of journalists already covering the camp. I wanted to do something for the people inside the camp. Um, So they created this mural, which, you know, it had been this concrete wall. You can see the barbed wire above it. It doesn't, it doesn't take away all the horror, but it makes it a little more artistic there. And it, it gives value to these these lives that are stuck inside this camp. They also set up a photo booth, which was pretty right. sweet. Yeah. Um, and families would come, yeah, just as you said, they left, they had to leave everything behind. Like, how do you, yeah, how, how, how does one in the United States even begin to imagine that? Um, but families would come in and they would bring the one or two possessions that they had with them and they'd sit for these portraits and then they'd give the portraits back to the families.
0: Mm -hmm. And I remember her mentioning that it was so popular, they had to close it at a certain (laughs) point that it was so valuable for people to have that, have that experience. I'm going to go through a few more images. This was interesting to me um, again on the gender issue, because this was um, Alexander Joe photographing where women, uh, you know, almost like a modern day Rosie the Riveter. It's like when you're in war zones or aftermath, um, women doing um, and being part of the workforce in a way they were not, quote unquote, allowed to before. Um, And I have to say, again, this is an aesthetically beautiful image um, and layered in the sense that those are all women going to work. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I First of all, nobody wants a
1: book where it's all just gore all over the place, Mm -hmm. but conflict photography isn't just gore, right? And that was kind of what I was saying early on with the the different definitions of conflict and and the different ways of representing it visually. It can be, you can pause and take very beautiful pictures and highlight um, stunning moments in addition to documenting the horror as well.
0: Mm -hmm. and I thought this was an interesting example because the images, in terms of where you bring your images, and this was an exhibit within a church, and this idea that um, people could congregate in a religious, uh, a a building devoted to religion and be informed.
1: Yeah, so um, Laurent van der Stockt has been covering or he covered Syria uh, for a long time. He's actually one of the two journalists. He was working with another journalist who broke the news of the use of chemical weapons there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and he goes into that in his interview. And so he, you know, he f- he feels very strongly about the devastation and destruction of what is hap- has happened and continues to happen in Syria, particularly on civilian lives. And he said he wanted to find a way to make people far away from Syria feel, you know, uh, more compassion or more understanding. Um, and he said, when the death tolls are so high, when you're talking about, you know, 200, th- at the time that he did this, I think it was about 200,000 dead. It's so much higher now. Um, but he said, how do you how do you make that realer for people, especially when it's the news they see every single day and they start to get fatigued. So he did this exhibition in, uh, a massive cathedral, and he said, on the one hand, um, people have a different behavior in a church. They're they're more right. quiet. They're more thoughtful. They're more reserved. They'll kind of take in things around them in a uh, maybe a, a more. They're less overloaded, right, by the twenty four seven of news, and then um, it's hard to tell the scale in this picture. Uh, but the images were printed. Uh, essentially one to one. So if you were to stand in front of this picture, you are the same size as those people you're looking at. And so he wanted to make the, the people in the photo, he wanted to make them like real. He wanted it not to be the experience of looking at them on your iPhone where they're this big, but mm-hmm. to have the experience of you know, what does it mean to be the father who's uh, the father on the left side of the picture with his son, they're carrying a suitcase because they're fleeing and their whole lives are packed into that one suitcase, you know, what is that experience? And and the image second from the left um, is a someone who's covered in blood. And I believe the story may have been that he just dropped off a relative um, at a hospital or a morgue. And, you know, the remnants of the relative are, are kind of still drenched on him. Um, so, yeah he said it was it was a very it's not he's and he was specific in saying this is not journalism anymore journalism needs to be contextualized whether in a newspaper or some kind of news article and this uh was not contextualized like that but he wanted to catch people in an in another way or in another register to get them to kind of stop and listen for a little bit listen yeah, bit was effort, that I mean. in
0: church you have the ability to be contemplative um Hopefully uh, part of thinking is being a part of a larger humanity and then having it on that one-to-one scale takes away the sense of distance that we can have literally from the size of the image. Like if you think about if you're reading your uh, news source on your iPhone, that's like so far away, but this is not, this doesn't have that ability. And I know um, context is really big. And um, Susan talked a lot about that. I'm not sure if I have a photograph of hers here, but um, she also brought up the relationship, basically what is our relationship with the collective consciousness, that idea of, um, she really speaks to context and that by taking an image, you, you can you honestly are taking the context away and that there is a responsibility to recontextualize the image. And I appreciate you making the point between when someone is stepping out of a journalistic source image uh, and not. And I think that's part of the matrix that we are going to have to address as we move forward.
1: Yeah, Um, Um, and I mean, Go ahead. Did you, do you want me to say anything
0: more about Susan Maiselis or? Yes, please, yes. Because I I, I realized, I, I don't think I have an image in here of her I don't think
1: there's an image of her in here, um, of, of hers in an here. An
0: extremely um, important force over decades and really spans uh, our visual literacy because of her input.
1: And considered um, an early female war photographer. Um, covering the insurrection in Nicaragua in the 70s. Um, and I think it may have been even when I was talking about that coverage to her that she references the point you're making. Um, Cause she, she said to me, you know, what does it mean to teach the, the insurrection in Nicaragua which happened in 1978 and 1979, what does it even mean to teach that to undergraduates today? Like they don't have the collective consciousness mm-hmm. that an older generation would have. And she said, you know, they're not even, they're not even old enough, uh, even if they don't know the details of Nicaragua, an older generation um, who may not be as versed in what happened in Nicaragua at least has a collective consciousness of Vietnam and what war means and what um, guerrilla warfare can mean and what that kind of destruction can mean. And she said, um, the collective consciousness shifts over time. And if we look at a younger generation, they don't have that shared knowledge. And so you, and that's her point, then you, you have to contextualize and recontextualize through the teaching and through the places where you display the images. Um, m- many photographers put a lot of emphasis on giving context. I think Susan Maiselis may have um, been the kind of most emphatic about it, um, as you were saying, Sybilla.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I picked up on, and um, it is really interesting to to know what is the historical context that we walk with, and when I was working for um, on the article Through a Woman's Lens, which was part of the first women's issue of Zeke, which is the Social Documentary Network's publication, I had such a window into uh, history in a way that I hadn't before Um, and in 2015 I was in Paris at um, for Paris photo and was part of um, went to see um, who's afraid of women photographers and it was actually a two-part series and because of the terrorist attack that happened I only got to one of the museums because everything public closed, but it was my introduction to women photographing World War I, which I had not uh, known about. And then uh, in my article, the conflict photography that was done in Vietnam by women. Um, and so interesting to know just, uh, I'm circling back to the, to the women and gender component, um, that we have to know our history. We are more powerful when we do. Um, and I think um, Nusha is an interesting person to be looking at right now. She was also in my article, I referenced her work because of how she was trying to highlight, uh, it was the series whose name I forget at the moment, but it was the women that were not able to sing but were singers and she did portraits of these women saying you can't sing but we can we have another way of your voice coming out. And I love this quote of hers, the violence that is harder to represent is the hidden violence, the social issues that consume society from within. And I think um, that brings me to two points, which is um, how we unearth the issues that lie, lie, lie beneath and um, the issue of, of looking in our own backyard, that there's so much that we need to understand about the hidden violence, the social issues that are in all of our cultures. Um, So I think that's an important point. And what I also wanted to reference in terms of Nusha was um, really powerful and I'm so glad it was a part of the book where you put in her project, A Thousand Words for a Picture Never Taken. Uh, in 2014 and she really tries to engage and reflect like these women that she is they're part of the YPJ fighters for freedom they're free or free they're powerful on the front line or have agency there but not within the society um, so a contradiction that she's trying to um, to show us um, but maybe you could speak to um, the thousand
1: yeah, words. Yeah, sure. Um, and Nusha again, <laughs> I, I, she's quite incredible. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I would say, I mean, of course, I, I, I of course want everyone to purchase my book, but if you don't go to Nusha's website and look at the body of work called a thousand words for a picture I never took. It's,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it is, it's devastating. Um, I will preface with that. Um, it's, the story of a Yazidi girl who was kidnapped by ISIS and escapes, and that's all I'll say to so not spoil it. Um, but it's, it's also the story of Nusha Tavakolian as a photojournalist who went to document this girl and then never took a picture. Um, be, the The moment for the picture presented itself so evidently, kind of handed itself to her, and she talks through her reasoning of why she didn't take the picture. Um, And ultimately, it's a reasoning of, of of a respect for the subject of the photo and also a respect of the distance between her and the subject and the idea that the suffering that Nusha was witnessing at that moment was so enormous that she couldn't really understand it. So what right did she have to take a picture of it? And so it's this kind of documentary project that is both about this female survivor of something horrible and about Nusha's complicated role as the documentarian who doesn't document with her primary medium, the camera.
0: I was thinking in her quote here, I want to emphasize that one's approach to photojournalism should not lead to the objectification of the human subject. The subject has agency and that agency has to be protected. Um, That makes me think of something else that I believe um, it was Alam spoke to, when he was talking about uh, removing the sense of the other, and that um, he speaks about um, making ourselves heard where the noise is, which goes back to the local and really understanding. Um, But there was another point in the book, and I'm not sure if it was his point where the, the person with the most information is actually the subject of the image, and they are the person with the least power.
1: Yeah, it's it's um it's a it's a brilliant point, um, and it's one of these things that as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, duh, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, most of us don't think of it. So, mm-hmm. the, Shahidul Alam again; he's the Bangladeshi photographer, and he is um, a, he is kind of the grandfather of photojournalism um, in that in, the, it's in, in that region of the world, right? I said, it's mm-hmm. photojournalism is historically far more Western. Um, he started a school, an institute, a festival. And so he is very much concerned with who has been given the privilege of telling stories of other people's suffering. Um, and he very, much, very outspokenly in the interview says, um, it has been controlled by a Western narrative for too long. Um, why shouldn't Bangladeshis tell the, their story of their own suffering? And he say, and then he gives this anecdote and he says, um, if you take a picture of a farmer in you know, a rice field, um, and then it, let's say it's taken by a Western photographer who flies to Bangladesh, takes a picture of the photographer, uh, takes a picture of the farmer in the field, and then the photographer submits their picture to their Western news editor, who's based in Paris or New York, Um, And then it comes time to kind of caption the photo. And he says, first of all, the farmer probably never has his name captioned because no one thought to ask him for his name. And the person who's most knowledgeable of what's going on locally in that rice field is the farmer, but no one is speaking to that farmer. And the farmer is the most distant from where that image will appear. And the farmer is given the least amount of empowerment and and agency in this chain of command when it comes to news and news information. And I found that a, a, a very interesting Um, I mean, he's also, he he also points out that, you know, over his years of work, which has been about 40 years, he has seen a lot of shifts in the way um, international news works, um, in part because there's a much more raised consciousness now of local journalists, um, and local journalists working more hand in hand with foreign publications. Um, But yeah, that that historical imbalance that he talks through with the
0: anecdote of the farmer. Mm, Yeah. I'm trying to. Um, oh, good. Now I, I I I I see that I'm getting through the slides. What I wanted to do was be able to just go through a few, and um, I want to open up our, our conversation to to questions. Um, I guess there are two two last quest. Well, there's three <laughs> um, questions, but I uh, what I would love to circle back to if we if we can at some point um, is the biography of a photo and the film that you worked on with Ron. So that's just an aside of a question, but um, talking about the second section uh, and third in terms of um, the news agencies and and then the NGOs, if we could just spend a little bit of time there before I open it up to questions. Um, I was struck, Marianne Golan, Uh, brought up a great point about how kind of the power dynamics and how it shifted that in terms between text and image. And she would say, writers uh, and journalists would say my photographer, and, and like, as if the journalist that was going to write the story was the lead person and had an assistant in the photographer, and how that's changing, and that there's now teams and that's different. And I thought it was interesting with Marian um, Martins, who works for um, Paris Match, and she used a quote of theirs, which was the weight of the words and the shock of the photo. And and thinking about the news editors uh, led me to think too about how Ron spoke about this. And I don't know if it was Nina, it was another... um, photographer, where, where, where your image ultimately is shown and how People Magazine with its 40 million viewers uh, is a place that actually helped some issues be seen or noted. Um, And I think what I was kind of appalled by, but learned from your book, and I had Okay, I knew there was imbalance, but I never that you actually talk about the fact that um, our news is 75 Western, mostly American um, news is 75 percent sports. Second is entertainment and third is actual news uh, and that uh, a European audience is a little bit more balanced than ours. So those are just some of the things this idea of like the 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 gatekeepers and you had brought up before how the NGOs, uh, and the humanitarians aid organizations have a particular, um, agenda that is, that is unique. Um, but there are another thing that has changed so much grown into the, you know, tens of thousands. I think it was 62,000 NGOs was what was quoted, uh, That we now have trying to address these issues. So I I guess just before we go open to questions, if you could just dip into that the second and third section if there's points you'd like to make about that.
1: Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. So I I spoke to um, the two editors at major publication, two photo editors, and then the former director of photography for the Associated Press, which is a major massive wire service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the head of a, a, a major photo agency. And I, yeah, I mean, Marian Golan, uh, who is the director of photography at the Washington Post and formerly was at Time Magazine. She really talks through a history of having to fight for respect for imagery. Um, she says for the longest time it was treated like decoration on the page. It was just there to illustrate the words. Um, and she is an enormous supporter of um, the photographers who are working under her and she will champion their work. Um, actually, when I interviewed her, I had to go to Washington DC um, to meet with her at the post. And in the middle of the interview, they, every every newspaper, every daily newspaper has um, a daily meeting where the editors come together and you talk through uh, what's going to be published the next day. And the editors kind of vie for my story, you know, my story, like which story is going to get kind of higher billing. And, and as the editors should, they should be fighting for their journalist's work. Um, and I can say without any hesitation, Marianne Golan fights for her journalists. I mean, I really saw her kind of with boxing gloves on going to bat for, for her photographers. Um, And it comes through in the interview with her as well, that she has um, been combative on their behalf. Um, And yeah, it was Santiago Lyon, the former director of photography at the Associated Press, who was talking about that balance of how many images that go across the wire are actually like foreign news images. And it is a small percentage, um, you know, because it reflects in a a quote unquote American appetite. Like what are the images we are used to seeing uh, or maybe prefer to see? Um, some of the other issues that I asked the editors about were, you know, how do you how do you make the call in terms of what's what's graphic and um, you can run it, and what's too graphic for your audience? Why do you consider something too graphic? Are you more likely to run graphic imagery when it involves non-Americans, right, non-Western? Um, are you kind of giving more dignity to American? deaths know deaths that may occur uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, a bunch of ethical questions. A number of the editors had started out as conflict photographers. So I was asking them also like, why did you make this shift? Um, What is the difference between being a photographer and being an editor? How do you look at the images differently? And they have really decisive answers on like, it is a very different experience of taking a picture versus um, being the editor. And then with the um, human rights and humanitarian organizations, the picture that we're looking at right now um, is taken by a photojournalist, but she was working for Human Rights Watch. Um, the the woman, girl that we're looking at is a Rohingya woman who survived a horrific attack, and um, members of her family did not. And the the person I interviewed from Human Rights Watch was the emergencies director. So he is. Person who goes on the ground where extreme violation or violence is occurring in order to do whatever possible to stop it before it gets worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he talks about very openly about um, he's like, No, I've absolutely taken to naming and shaming on Twitter. I will absolutely put out um, graphic imagery if I have to. I'll, I'll put a kind of warning on it, but I'll put it out there if it's going to make. Um, and he's talking about an example in the Central African Republic which had French peacekeeping forces. And he said, if it's going to make the French government pay attention to how, the fact that their peacekeeping forces are letting massacres and murders occur under their watch, then I will put it out there, um, which is very different, right? The Washington Post is not going to run a picture of a mutilated body. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of getting those differing perspectives and thinking through their agendas. But with this image, um, The emergencies director at Human Rights Watch said uh, there was a tremendous amount of violence occurring. There was a tremendous amount of gendered violence, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of rapes occurring. And so he talks through. um, He said, I knew or I know Anastasia Taylor Lint. I know her body of work. I know that she will be sensitive as a photographer working with women who have been violated. And so he made the decision to work with her to cover this story.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, I, thank you thank you for all of this information. I'd like to open it up to questions. And, and um, I'm gonna see if I can go backwards through our slideshow. And Deb, I think you're back on as a co-host. And if you could, um, if people have their hand up, there's a way to do that under the participants. Uh, you can unmute yourself and ask the question.
2: Hi there. Um, yeah, so I see a few hands
0: hmm. And I'm going to try to go backwards. But this has been This whole setup is not usual today. <laughs> yeah. Let's see.
2: Okay, so I think, um, Linda, are you ready? Okay, um, I see a few hands, let's
0: see, um, D Saunders. Got me on mute, I can see.
2: Yes, am I, can you hear me now? Mm-hmm, we can. Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, so, hi Lauren, I, I just wanna say hello, this is Daryl Ann Saunders. Um, I have a couple of questions regarding the book. I just wondered, In order to do these interviews um, with the different photographers, did you get, how did you work out so that you could then edit the interviews freely? I mean, did you agree to show it to them for final approval or did you have them sort of sign a release with the idea that you could have that final edit or how how did that work regarding the interviews and the idea of releases or or not and so forth?
1: Sort of a combination of both. So the interviews were audio recorded um, and then they were transcribed and then I edited down. I mean, I didn't want to have um, A lot of repetition over interviews. Right. So I kind of pulled forward um, the the verbal responses that would kind of differentiate the conversations, but also would pair really nicely with the images. Um, yes, everyone did sign a release. Um, and then a fact checker. I, ha, I worked with a fact checker um, because, uh, it, as you'll see if you get the book, it covers an enormous amount of global history. And yeah, I, I wound up learning a lot of history in the process, but I didn't want to trust it just to my brain or even just to the, the brains of the photographers because, you know, you cover something 20 years ago, you might get a detail wrong. Um, so I worked with a fact checker, and the fact checker would flag, you know, I, I think this might be an error, or let's go back and check on this. Um, and in those cases, I would go back to the photographers and I would say, you know, you said this was November 1989, but we're really pretty certain it was October 1989. Is it okay to change that language? Um, and in all, in all cases, everyone was always like, oh yeah, your fact checker did a great job. That was my misremembering. Um, and they're, they're journalists, so they're, they want to be as accurate as possible. So there, was, um, there were a few corrections of details. Um, that's also... The, the, the existence of the fact checker is also explained and noted in the book. Um, but people weren't, um, no one even asked to, but but people were not censoring themselves after the fact. They weren't like, oh, I I said that on the record, but actually I want it off. Um, in part, again, because they're, they're all journalists. Um, so they kind of walk into this with a mentality of whatever I say is, is out there now on the record.
2: Yeah, I guess they're probably pretty used to that kind of, um, You know, you say it once, it's out there, that's it. And so I just wondered, um, you know, sometimes people think later on, oh, actually I would have said this about that situation or that photograph or forgot a good story or something like that. So I wondered how that worked. And then also I wondered if, um, and again, I'm not saying if this was necessary, but did you show each of them the final version just to kind of get the last – approval about the photography, or did you feel you had to discuss that with them, or was that something that you then finally, ultimately went ahead with, and did, did it the way you saw fit, without speaking the final okay, so to speak? Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a good,
1: it's a good question. I think um, my experience is, uh, it was actually just, it was a much, There was never um, any antagonism in these relationships. It was very collaborative or supportive. So um, I did ask everyone up front, for whatever images I choose, will I be able to run them? Everyone said yes. Um, So I mean, they knew which images were getting published because they were the ones who had to hand over the image files to me. Um, But no no one questioned my edit of which images were in the book or not. And I mean, again, they were maybe because they're coming from such a journalistic background, they weren't trying to control the narrative.
2: Yes, I understand. Thank you. And I guess the, only, the last little thing I wanted to ask is just, um, oh, did they, did they, um, did you provide them with books after the fact and, and that sort of, thing? Or just, you know, I did guess I, I'm doing a little bit more sorry, of the, the book part. You cut of, out
1: a little, did they, did I provide them with copies of the book? Is that what you're asking?
0: I have a feeling that was the question.
1: Okay, I did. Everyone who helped me with the book, um, even people who, like Anastasia Taylor Lint, whose photo of the Rohingya woman we're looking at, um, she's not interviewed in the book, but she gave me a photo So everyone who was a part of the book. I wanted them to have a copy of the book after the fact. That was important to me.
2: Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks, Lauren.
1: Thank you.
0: I see Linda with a hand up. Do you want me to, is that true, Linda? I think she's
1: talking and not unmuted.
0: Yeah, I'm unmuting her, but it's not happening. Yeah, I tried too. I think She has to unmute herself. Um, I think she'll figure out that's not, I don't know why it's not happening from us, but is there another person I see, Lee? I'm here. Lee?
2: Uh, I,
0: Lee or... Leah, go ahead. I think we're having some sound. Publisher. Issue. Leah, you're going to have to read the book. your
2: book.
1: Oh, the publisher is Bloomsbury. How do you buy-
0: Are you asking how did she find? You approach I I didn't quite hear the question. I I think the question, sorry, Leah, you're not coming in clearly, Um, but I think the question is, is did you approach the publisher or did?
1: Um, I had a colleague who uh, had worked with Bloomsbury and they have a photography line and the colleague mentioned me to a commissioning editor um, and then I was put in touch with the commissioning editor there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I believe that, Linda, you're now on un- okay. okay.
2: I wanted to know what the names are of the photo editors who were
1: so generous to share the work. Oh, good question. It's Santiago Lyon, formerly of the Associated Press. It's um, Aidan Sullivan who has uh, worked at a number of major publications, including the Times of London, and is now the CEO and founder of a photo agency called Verbatim. Marianne Merton, who is the senior digital editor, so she oversees both magazine and everything online of Match. Um, and then Marianne Golan, uh, director of photography at the Washington Post and formerly director of photography at Time Magazine.
2: Thank you, that's sure. superb.
0: Mm-hmm. I can say, um, having spent the last 10 years in and out of a lot of um, platforms to amplify documentary photography, um, it is, you have done an amazing job of lending important voices, and it's both over Uh, the amount of time people have been in the industry. I'm thinking of Santiago who did start as a conflict photographer and how that changed into being an editor as opposed to Mary Ann who um, I had the privilege of meeting at look three when that was happening and how I know she talked about being a den mother to people and that the editors feel an intense responsibility for where they're, placing the photographers um but i think um it's such a unique vantage point that you've provided in this book lauren where you're really as i said at the beginning looking behind the lens and really helping take a stand for us to become more informed consumers thank you yeah i I see there is
1: one more question in the chat box do you want to Sure, I'm not to field the it.
0: Chat, so please, yes, field. It.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm just seeing. Also, maybe a reminder to somebody to mute because there's a lot of background noise. Um, I think the Linda, question.
0: You need to unmute now, or you need to mute Linda, please, because you can hear your.
1: Um, it's a multi-part question. Uh, did the student who had that reaction to the knocked away photo change his position? And the question is more broadly about what's the kind of photographs power to affect change. Um, And a reference to um, Pete Souza, who's a former uh, White House photographer, who said Mm -hmm. that when he saw the Newtown Connecticut photos um, at the time, he wondered about whether or not the public, if the public saw them, there might be a change in public position about funds rights. Um, So what are my thoughts about power of photography and affecting change? Um, That particular student, he didn't change very dramatically. but I also, you know, I had such a kind of stop in my tracks reaction to him that day. And the more I worked through the book, actually, the more I, I had a, a lot more of a compassionate way of thinking about his response. Um, because some of this imagery is it's just it's just so painful. And if you look at it when you're already having a bad day or something else is going on in your life, it might just actually be too much. And I don't know what else was going on with him. And sometimes I say that to people and they they say, you're being overly kind. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I actually teach, um, Paul, you said you worked on war photographer. I teach that in some of my classes. Um, it's a wonderful documentary film about James Noctway. As, as to the power of images to affect change, I, I think the answer is, if we walk into any of this thinking that one photo is going to change something, that's the wrong approach. Um, it's photos can play an enormous role in a larger trajectory of change, but the it, it takes a, a collective will. It takes first of all, I think, a, a great appreciation in journalism, which in this country kind of has gone up and down, um, you know. And I, when you have a, a president that shouts fake news in response to often legitimate reportage that's, that undermines journalism. So I think it you know it comes back to this kind of media literacy or even maybe more basic, like what's the what's the value of journalism? And and I think journalism is fundamental to a democracy, like absolutely fundamental to a democracy. And I think the more people can understand that, then the more you have a kind of collective will um, and a greater appreciation for learning about issues. And I think then images can have the kind of impact that you're, you know, getting at with Newtown, right? It was one of the most horrific stories that we've all ever heard. And one of the photographers speaks to it um, in his interview and he says, I just didn't want to be alive anymore. Um, and you know, the the policies on guns' rights have barely changed at all. Um, so I, I think it's the teaching of all of us, but especially rising generations to be informed citizens and to participate in civic discussion and to be critical thinkers of news, news imagery and written reportage and television news, um, all of it. I think, I think that's what gets you towards um, having impact. I mean, there are, of course, the exceptions that have gone down in history where a single image does an enormous amount. Um, And those are phenomenal exceptions. um, And they're phenomenal photographs, but they're often also connected to larger forces, right? So, I mean, even the photograph from Vietnam that everyone, my students included, they all know it when I what I describe it. If I say the name of the photographer, they won't know it. If I say the date, they won't know. But when I say a, a naked little girl running down a sc- street screaming because the village behind her has been bombed, they all know the photograph. And and often the the shorthand is it's the photograph that turned the tide of public opinion. Um, and, and that, you know, the deeper story is yes and no, right? The tide was already turning. Um, and we were Already um, seeing some of the graphic imagery in the early part of the Vietnam War, we weren't seeing graphic imagery um, and the the tide was shifting already, and then with this collective will and then the image that kind of cements it for us, and then yes, you have kind of these these collective shifts that can occur you know we, and we see this um, there was a kind of collective conversation around the photograph of the little boy who washed up on a Turkish shore yes. right, the Syrian Alan refugee. Purdy.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of that because I was—I uh, did some work around that, and that was a woman photographer in a local newspaper who took that image. And there is an interview with her because she went day after day. And there's a lot of—that's um, an amazing example of how we become—we um, expect to see particular images coming from that situation um and um i did a show um with um uh machek nabradalek called refugee crisis and he literally went because he wanted to see it with his own eyes and there would be photographers from different agencies or countries and they would not be taking all of the photographs they would wait for the right shot and that's that's actually another piece that came out and was the impetus for Peter DeCampo and Everyday Africa as well, which is another body of work to look at. But what I think is interesting is that that particular image of Alan Kurdi was done by a local woman photographer and how we're losing local sources because of the economy. Um, so that's, I think, why when I started and wanted to interview you, Lauren, this book just opened so many layers. And I think it's an amazing, um, like, you've opened a door into media literacy that I think uh, was brave and courageous. And I can only imagine how difficult. Uh, So congratulations on that. And um, the number of resources that are within the book, I. I will be circling back and put out a blog that will, will highlight some of them, but there are so many. Um, so I am sure that your fact checker and you were just inundated because there's just an incredible amount of information. So I just wanna give you the last word. What is there anything you'd like us to know that we haven't covered?
1: I mean, no, I I, I want to just say thank you um, to you for hosting this, to everyone for showing up. Um, you know, there was one comment that I saw in the chat that, from someone who said, I'm not a photographer and just as the consumer, it's really hard to look at all of these and to stay informed of, you know, all these terrible things all over the world. And that, I think, is a completely fair perspective. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as a collective, we just have to find, way, like, what are the issues that you care about? And when do you need to kind of take a break from the screen or put down the newspaper. I think that's that's fine. And that's the kind of more compassionate position I came to with my student. But I also, you know, I, I do think particularly as Americans, um, we have an obligation to understand where our country is leaving footprints, whether they're particularly visible or less visible. I think we should try to be informed about those things. Um, so that's my... I don't know, my final plug for media literacy and civic duty maybe. (laughs) If it's okay with you, I'll throw into the chat um,
0: my -hmm. contact
1: details so people can follow up with me. It should be
0: up on the screen right now, correct? Oh, cool, okay. Oh, yes, Um, it is. And yes, it will go in the chat and it will go in the blog post and we have the links. Uh, I think the link was on our event page, but it will be in the blog as well, um, how to purchase the book. Um, It was really interesting because, it took me a while, but I I have a habit of underlining books, and and it was really interesting. Yours gave me pause because it is a cross in terms of genres, and I didn't feel like I could. But then there was just so much I had to start writing in it, so I have I have now made it my own, and it is all marked up. But no, as the um,
1: professor, I love when people mark up books, so that's fine. <laughs>
0: It was, it was, that goes so far back because I, I, um, yeah, I just, I think with an implement in my hand and, uh, yeah, so it was fun that I know that I hesitated, but once I started, it was, it was necessary. Yeah. So, um, yes, put in anything else that you need to in the chat. And I want to thank everybody for, for joining us and, um, this is just yeah. the beginning of a thank conversation. You. I, I love that the book is Conversations because it is, it was funny, I think at the end, I, I came up with this um, idea for a, a secondary title, which is No Simple Answers. Because <laughs> I think there aren't <laughs> That's a, That's a good one too, yes. <laughs> and I appreciate you basically outlining the questions, which is so important. Thank so you. thank you.
2: Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Sue. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye, bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.
0: I see Mary and Linda. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.
2: Oh, Sabilla, this is really going well. You really, I was avoiding all of this because, you know, I have hearing aids. And it's really hard. To connect but I had a marvelous time, and you're always going deeper. and I love it. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for joining us.